everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. I'm Brittany Simon, and today I once again have Dr. Myra Estrada joining me to talk about the six principles of influence as derived from the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert B. Cialdini, PhD. And before we jump in, for those of you who didn't hear um, Dr. Estrada's prior podcast with us about non-traditional patient management, I kind of want to give her another introduction. Um, she's an amazing person. She's an amazing doctor who works with me at the Spodak Dental Group. But in addition to that, I want to give some official background here. So Dr. Estrada was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and she received her bachelor's in science from Florida State University and her doctorate in dental medicine from Temple University in Philadelphia. During her time spent in Philadelphia, she also co-founded Temple University's first ever Peru mission trip, where her team provided free dental care and oral health education to more than 800 infants and children of La Sagrada Familia Orphanage. Dr. Estrada is a general dentist who does everything from crown and bridge work to complex full mouth restorative and rehabilitation cases. And as I mentioned before, she's also an incredible human being and now a mom of her um, beautiful little boy. Um, so I would like to first ask uh, regarding this book. Well, first of all, actually, let me back up. Thank you so much for joining me at, uh, late in the evening on a, on a Sunday. That's dedication to this profession. And I truly appreciate your time. Um, I do really want to hear about your kind of perspective on this book because you actually shared some principles in this book with us in the last podcast that you did. And you said we could do a podcast on that. And here we are doing a whole podcast on that because it, it makes so much sense. And I was like so excited, floored, ready to hear more when you were, when you, when you kind of dangled the carrot on us last time. So I'm really eager to hear what you have to say about this. But I guess first, let's start with, you know, how did you first hear about this book? And when did you first read it? So this book, um, I actually heard about this book before I was even a dentist from uh, my husband. And my husband is, uh, he's a banker, he's obsessed with uh, um, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway, and, you know, like every year when the annual report comes out for Berkshire Hathaway, it's an event in our house and we have to read it all together. So anything that Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger say, this is, this is it. This is the rule in our house. And, uh, the number one business book that they load well, that Charlie Munger recommends is, uh, this book influence. And so, um, so we started talking about it and we read it. Um, we read it independently. Um, and I actually started reading it maybe a year or so after him, but I did notice that he got much better at um, convincing me to do things in our marriage after he read the book. 
<laughs> so it is pretty effective. And then once I read the book, then we were on level ground again. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but this, the way that I initially learned about it was through Charlie Munger uh, from Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, so you're mentioning how it kind of impacted your marriage relationship, but how I'm just wondering in a general sense, and of course, we're going to get into the specifics and talk about how each of these principles specifically impacts your practice and your um, professional communication skills. But in a general sense, kind of how have you noticed your practices changed since reading and implementing these things? So influence is one of those things that um, you kind of fine tune and, and the, the better, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So this is probably just one thing that is in a large pot of things that I use to refine the way I influence people and my patients, um, aka the way I recommend treatment, the way I get them to like me, the way I get them to feel like they can relate to me. And it goes with everything. It goes with patients. It goes with, you know, people who are on my team, with my husband, when, you know, I'm asking for a table at a restaurant, you know, you start to realize that these are things that you can use everywhere. And before I was a dentist, um, I worked in sales for years. I worked in pharmaceutical sales. I worked in sales. I used to work for Norwegian Cruise Line. So I did a lot of um, things where a lot of my role had to do with whether I could connect with a person. Um, so this is just one of those things. But I didn't start reading this book until I was in dental school. But this book was really good because it really just lays everything up very clearly. It's more it's very much about the psychology of the way people see things and how you can get them to believe the things that they need are the things that they want. And that's the key when you're trying to get patients to accept treatment is to make them realize that the things they need are actually the things they want. Yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And that's totally a skill because we know that we know all the things, but that doesn't mean that we can adequately relay those things to patients. So I'm glad that you brought that up because before we really get started and fully jump into this, I think that it's important anytime we start talking about influence, persuasion, or that terrible yucky word that people generally are triggered by, you know, selling, it creates generally some space and opportunity for people to get triggered. Because often in our society, I think that we misunderstand, mislabel, and misuse these words, and sometimes even use them interchangeably with words like, manipulation, control, like we, we kind of tend to equate it with like playing mind games. And I want to get out of the way on the front end here, the fact that we are suggesting using these principles in order to enroll patients in the care and treatment that they actually need, as you just mentioned, in order to be their healthiest selves and live their best lives. So we all know here, right, if we're fueled by Selfish motives, short-term tactics to increase numbers with no sustainable positive outcome for the patients. These are the things that, in my opinion, you know, karma is going to cause to burn out pretty quickly and isn't sustainable. So that's not what we're alluding to here. So we talk about influence in an effort to improve communication and enrollment, um, also to meet ethical goals with the realization that everyone involved in healthcare has a choice, right? So I have a choice as a provider to do my best assessment using my highest level of integrity, and the patient has the choice about whether or not to accept treatment, depending on the effectiveness of my communication, connection, and presentation. So we all know that that we know all the things, but that doesn't mean that we know how to communicate and teach those things effectively. So that's really why we're here tonight, 
talking about this book and the principles of influence because we want to implement all of our knowledge in the most effective way. So you spent all that time and money. You dedicated a big chunk of your life to going to dental school, to learning what you needed in order to do dentistry. But if you are not proficient in communicating a person's dental needs to them, you're not going to get a chance to do that dentistry to live out your purpose or to fulfill the the actual need for the patient, right? If we can't relay that information effectively, it's landing on deaf ears and we're not able to fulfill our mission basically for the patient and our role in this world and in this life and help people. So um, with that being said, let's look at the six principles of influence. And Dr. Estrada, of course, I would like to hear about your experience clinically and professionally with each one. Um, So let's start with the first one, which is reciprocity. So reciprocation um, is essentially the notion that people try to repay in kind for what they've been given. Human beings are wired to return favors. And by nature, we feel obliged to provide discounts or concessions to others if we've received favors from those same people. So all because we simply hate to feel indebted to others. So please tell us how you implement this uh, first principle of reciprocity in your daily practice and how that's working for you. So um, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but um, there are two people in my life that I have noticed um, like to start interactions with new people by giving them a compliment. Um, And they both happen to be named Dr. C, (laughs) which is Dr. Craig. (laughs) and then also Dr. C from dental school. And so um, Dr. C from dental school, every year she would win. um, We would, we would elect a a faculty that was the favorite faculty who would give the speech at graduation. And it was Dr. C every year. And I would watch Dr. C interact with patients and every single patient. Oh, I like your hair. Oh, those are really beautiful shoes. So always, there was always a compliment. And she was so good at doing it so smoothly. And she was always very genuine about it. She never lied about a compliment, but she did always do it. And it was, it was such a nice trick because it was a nice way to get the patient's guard down and to get them kind of liking you right off the bat. And so, and, you know, I think we talked about this last time on the last episode, but when you have patients that come in and they have high fear, I always ask them, did you sleep last night? because you knew you were coming to the dentist and they'll say yes or no, but you could tell they're nervous. And then I'll say, well, you know what? I really commend you for coming in today. I give them a compliment. I tell them about how proud I am of them for overcoming that fear and coming into the appointment, because then that's another way you give them a compliment. So you can always start off a, a conversation or just in general, find a way to get a genuine compliment in to a patient or a person that you're interacting with, because they can feel when you're disingenuine. And they can mm-hmm. feel when you're, when you're exaggerating something that you're complimenting and maybe you're overly exaggerating it, you have to make sure that it's a very genuine compliment. Um, but that's one way. And then sometimes um, there was another situation where this, situ- where this technique was used on me as a patient. And it was when I was a kid in college and I had a great dentist, uh, Dr. Glenn Beck in Tallahassee. Uh, but anyways, I had a great patient I mean a great dentist and uh, we I had a day where I had to come in and I think I was just getting regular work done maybe fillings or something like that and he noticed that my front tooth had like a chip in it or something and I didn't even notice it myself but it had been there for decades probably I don't know how long it had been there been there a really long time and he was like let me just fix that for you I won't charge you I'll just do it for free 
And it made such a huge difference. And it took him like five minutes to do. He literally just had to etch bun, put on some resin. And that was the end of it. And it was, it made a huge change in my, my smile and it was free. And I always went to him. I was so sad when I graduated from college and I had to change dentists because he was the best dentist I ever had. And that was one of those things where it was so minor. So now that I'm practicing, I do that all the time. I do it all the time. If I have patients who, you know, I'm working on a bunch of fillings or I'm doing a bunch of anything, if I'm doing work on them and it's, you know, significant work, I'll say, you know what, you've got this thing here. Let me just do it for you. I won't charge you. It's not a big deal. And they're so grateful for it. Or if I notice that they have stains on their teeth that just are not going to come out with uh, pumice or polishing or just a regular cleaning. But I know that if I just take my hand piece and I just do like a quick zip zip and it takes that stain off and they don't look like they have, you know, brown or black stains on their teeth anymore. They love that too. And I do that for my patients all the time. I'll say, you know, I'll do some fillings or crowns for them. And I'll be like, you know what? You've got the stain on the front tooth. That's really bugging me. Let me just get it off for you. And then it makes your teeth look so much whiter and they're so grateful for it. So little things that you can do like that, they're gifts that you give them. And then the patients feel so, you know, grateful or they just kind of feel indebted. And after that, you either gain a relationship with them or you gain treatment acceptance from them. But um, I know that some, some patients will uh, sometimes, I mean, some offices will sometimes do a technique where they give patients a free gift. So I know, uh, like, let's say, for example, if they have a new patient come in the door, they greet the patient, the patient goes into hygiene, and then after they finish hygiene, they get a gift from the hygienist or from the office. So that gift is like a way for them to, to enact the reciprocity and then after that gift is given to them they're walked back to a different room and they're they're encouraged to you know reschedule for their next appointment for their next cleaning and then after they've received the gift then they feel like they have to you know enact this reciprocity and then they have to schedule so let's say for example um for the gift, sometimes people give, you know, you give them a toothbrush and toothpaste and all of that. We actually don't even do that at Spodak, but a lot of offices do this. But in addition to giving them toothbrush and toothpaste, you're supposed to give them something that's like unexpected. Like um, in my old office, we used to give phone chargers or like tote bags and things like that. Some places will give um, gift cards to local restaurants and then you build a relationship with the local restaurants and they give you a deal on the gift cards. So different things like that. And so they get a little gift that's not a toothbrush and toothpaste, something that's unexpected. And then that is like a tiny little bit of reciprocity. I love all those things. And I especially love, you know, obviously all this has to be from a genuine place and people can sense if we're being insincere. So the part about, you know, giving a compliment and making sure it's an absolutely a hundred percent true compliment, not embellished, not, not just to win the favor of the patient. Like you actually believe this thing is true. I think that's such an important point to make. Um, and, and also I love the idea of just going above and beyond what is expected because that makes so much sense. Like there, there is an expectation in our society in different settings. And of course, at the dentist, it's, I'm going to get floss and a toothbrush at the end, going above that. Mm-hmm. The norm is what creates that specialness. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, all those things. 
Okay, so. Oh, you know what? There's one more thing I wanted to talk about. There was a situation that happened at the practice recently. And I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a a person who will consider, you know, a VIP that came into the practice and they saw one of the doctors. They didn't see me. It was a different doctor that they saw. They saw one of the doctors and um, he talked to, and and basically what, what happened is he had a tooth that was missing on the bottom and he wanted a bridge and his temporary bridge had broken or something he had in place there for a while had broken. And so the doctor who he saw um, knew of the person's status and, and they kind of like, I think he came in on his day off because Craig called the doctor and was like, look, I have this situation. I know it's your day off, but could you please come in? There's no, no room on the schedule. I need somebody to help me with this patient. So what he did was he saw the patient and he did the bridge for, he made a bridge for the patient, um, a, a final bridge, not like a splinted temporary thing. It was a final bridge. So he made a bridge for the patient. And then he realized as he was treating the patient that it was actually the patient's birthday the next day or the next couple of days. And so he said, when he was like, okay, you know, how much is this, you know, how much did this cost me? Cause the guy didn't ask him how much it cost the whole time. And so at the end of it, he's like, how much do I owe you? And the doctor said to him, nothing, this is a birthday present. Happy birthday. And now, so then he's so grateful to this doctor that he invites him out to dinner. So they go out to dinner and they're sitting at a table of billionaires now. So now we have a regular dentist sitting at a table of billionaires. And then um, he's definitely, he's now coming back in for regular care and he's getting more work and he's referring all his friends and now it's a whole network that's opened up for that doctor of of influence through that one gift but obviously that's a very you know compounded example you can't do that with everyone but this was a very smart move very very smart move on on part of that doctor no i actually i do, i did hear the situation <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, know you, I know who you're talking about yeah that's an, it was, it was that's so genius story. i didn't hear the up though I didn't know that all of that happened after he did that so that's oh my gosh there's even more to, but yeah you know it was just it was so smart so smart but anyways that is a really great example of using the principle of reciprocity there's so yeah. many ways that you can use it talk about compounding reciprocity in that case <laughs> all right let's talk about the second uh principle here which is commitment and consistency so People tend to act consistently with what they've stated. Humans have a deep need to be seen as consistent, following from the principle of commitment. Once we've publicly committed to something or someone, we're much more likely to go through and deliver on that commitment, hence the consistency. So how implemented the commitment and consistency aspect of this? Okay, so almost every single patient that walks in um, comes in with some kind of guard up. So either they have some kind of fear of the dentist or they're afraid they're going to spend too much money or, you know, something, maybe just because of the unfamiliarity or maybe they have a past with negative experiences. So we always have to find a way to connect with them to help them realize that they're in the right place and to focus on exactly what brought them in and why they're here or why they're in our office in the first place. So Mm -hmm. we have to remind them of that and one of the things it's it's almost like uh using this principle as like a way to get your foot in the door so like for example when you um when you um am I, when we have our questionnaires in our questionnaires we always ask patients um what is their goal what 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 brought them in or what was their goal for the visit today 
And usually their answer is something like, I want a healthy smile. I want a white smile, something like that. And I always read that question out loud, the answer to that question to patients, if it's something, if it's filled out. Um, And the reason I do that is I want them to confirm that that's their goal or to have them verbalize or elaborate on why they wrote that statement. So if they say, you know, I want a healthy, like I try to ask them, I bring up a conversation about it. So I, I kind of bounce off of that. Once I get them to talk about it, or once we start a conversation about it, then I can position myself as a person who's going to guide them. So they are now, it's almost like they're the star now, and I am Mm -hmm. the guide, and I'm guiding them to the goal that they have set for themselves. So um, when I'm treatment planning, or I'm trying to solve issues for them, I bring it up again, and I'll remind them, you know, this and this and this, this is what we need in order to help you reach your goal. Um, and once they've verbally said it, they wrote it down on paper, then they're going to follow, like follow up and do their treatment or do whatever it is that they're, they're, are my recommendations are because they've already said verbally that this is why they're here. And instead of focusing on, oh, well, this doctor's telling me, you know, how do I know that she's telling me the truth? They're focusing on this is why I came here. This is my goal. And I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow through with what I said I'm going to do. That's one of the ways that we use it is with, when we use that questionnaire, that questionnaire is great for that. The fact that we have that question on there is amazing. Um, But then like the other ways that we can use it is like when you, um, when you, um, uh, let me think of that. Like, uh, okay, like, let's say, for example, when you're getting patients to schedule for their treatment. So after you finish treatment on patients, and then you have to get them to do their next appointment, instead of just saying to them, um, okay, well, can you come in Tuesday at two o'clock? You can't, if you say to them, can you come in Tuesday at two o'clock? They're going to say, no, it's too finite. So what you have to do is you set it up in a way so that there's a series of choices and they make their choices. And each time they make a choice, they're making another commitment. So you say, is it, is it easier for you to come in in the mornings or in the afternoons? And then they'll say in the mornings. And then you'll say, okay, well, do you prefer, you know, Mondays or Fridays? And then they'll say whatever day they prefer. And then you kind of get them and we call it, I call it a dual alternative close. That's what it's called, dual alternative close. So every time you ask them a question, you give them two choices. They'll pick one of the two choices and you narrow it down and then you narrow it down more. And you, and you know what? I use this with everything. I use this when I'm trying to negotiate where we're going to go out to dinner on the weekends. I use this when I try to negotiate, when I try to pick, um, when I try to get my son to pick what pajamas he's going to wear, um, different things like that. So the dual alternative clothes is a great way to get people to make small commitments that eventually leads to a larger commitment. <laughs> Lots of strategy I, I just love that all this is so intentional like I'm just thinking of how you have applied this to your personal life and your professional life in different ways and it's all so intentional and it just it it makes me happy when someone is living and communicating so intentionally so I just appreciate it um that being said let's move on to number three which is social proof mm-hmm. so when uncertain of what to do people act like others there's nothing like feeling validated based on what others are doing Cialdini defines social proof as people doing what they observe other people doing. It's safety in numbers. So tell us how social proof is working for you. 
Okay, so social proof. Social proof is so different now than it was when Cialdini wrote the book. Because when Cialdini wrote the book, he was talking about basically like a groupthink mentality. But now there's social media and social media is so powerful. Like you can literally create a career just off of your Instagram now. Um, and when you're able to do that, that in itself is social proof because what's happening is that somebody is seeing that you have a million followers or, you know, I don't know, 60,000 or 100,000 followers. And then they're saying, oh, well, this person must be a legitimate doctor because they've got all these followers. And, you know, we've, we've definitely seen this before where we see doctors that have a lot of followers um, and, and they have a, a very strong reputation on social media and people equate the reputation on social media to their ability to practice or their, their talent as a doctor. And so mm -hmm. that is where it can be very dangerous because um, social proof, you can't take social proof for, you know, at, it, you have to take social proof at its face value. So one of the ways that I like to use social proof at work is that um, other than, uh, than the social media thing, just online reviews. So one of the things about Spodak is that we have a really strong Google reviews presence. So if you look at our area, all of the other practices within our area don't have a lot of reviews, don't have a lot of, you know, comments. And it's, it's, our practice is so different compared to the other practices in our area. So when they look at, you know, dentists in Delray Beach, Florida, they'll see Spodak Dental and we have hundreds of reviews and pictures and whatever on the Google reviews. But then when you look at the next one down, I, I don't know, I think it's like 16 or something like that. So just that in itself is so, so powerful. And mm -hmm. I think like if you are a resident of Delray Beach and you're looking for a dentist and you see that it's no brainer, even if you can't get through on the phone, you're going to find a way to get into that practice because there's something happening there. So that's one thing is making sure the online reviews are strong. And then the other way to use it, which is my favorite way to use it, is that when I meet a patient and I'm doing the handoff to the hygienist, or I'm doing a handoff to another doctor who maybe I'm referring to for, for some other reason. The One of the last things I say before I leave the patient in this other person's hands is I say, you're in good hands. Brittany is a wonderful hygienist. I always do that. I always say, you're in good hands. Da, 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 and I say something that will make the patient understand that I personally am vouching for this person so that then they know that there is somebody else who regards the person highly and then they will regard the person highly. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that we briefly discussed, I know that we've discussed on prior podcasts, maybe it was with Sharice. I'm not sure if it was a discussion between you and me, but I know that when I'm relaying like a hygiene treatment plan or a hygiene service or product, something that I say a lot of the time is when I do this for other patients or what other patients have done in this scenario is move mm -hmm. forward treatment or enrolled in X um, payment option, or, you know, they've moved forward with this treatment versus this treatment. And this was the outcome for them to just normalize it. You know, I didn't know mm -hmm. you actually, because you said, Oh, did you read this book? And I said, no, I, I thought that it was just normalizing or creating like the sense of like other sane people have made this decision that I'm about to make, you know, because that like put people at ease and let them know one, others have this problem. They're not terminally unique. 
And two, there's a common solution that other like smart, respectable people have made. And this was the outcome for them. So it's like putting them on even playing field and kind of providing perspective, because of course, like yours is the only mouth, you know, with the dentist, right? If you're not a dentist to see all the things that we see, they see their own. So it's, it's kind of like, we've got to put it in perspective, I think. And that's the way that I like to do that. Okay. So that being said, let's go ahead and jump into principle number four, which is authority. So you're more persuasive when you're perceived as an authority. Have you ever wondered why we tend to obey authority figures, even if they're objectionable? It's human nature. We see the principle of authority in action in many walks of life. Many a LinkedIn profile and email signature is appended with a string of qualifications in an effort to increase an individual's authority. Dentists in white coats sell toothpaste and ads and airline staff wear uniforms to remind us of their authority. So tell us how you use authority or implement <laughs> authority at work. <laughs> Doesn't that sound so uh, to authority? <laughs> it sounds, sounds funny. It sounds, um, right. sounds kind of harsh and rigid and dangerous. But right. It is dangerous, actually. It's true. It, it is dangerous. Be. Yeah. If it's it misrepresented, so, if it's misrepresented. Mm-hmm. How it exactly. Be yeah. Exactly. So, um, Wait, I want to go back to that thing about authority, because the other day I heard somebody say this term that I had never heard before. And they said, you are leading with uh, positional leadership. Have you heard of positional leadership before? Mm. So positional leadership is when you are leading based on the fact that, you know, I am the doctor and you and you are this. So Mm. you should do what I say because I am the doctor. Mm-hmm. So that is like a, a negative way to use authority. So right. that's just clearing that up. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, using authority with the principles of influence in mind, with Cialdini's principles of influence, the way that he would probably say to um, convey authority is number one, wearing a t- appropriate attire. So there's a study out there. It's a, it's a study by Miles Landry. And what this study goes through is what should doctors wear? And what they did was they surveyed patients and they had doctors wearing specific attire. Um, and it was a study basically, and they would change the attire and then they would ask the patients how they perceived the doctor. And so they had the doctor wearing professional clothing, um, like business clothing. They had the doctor wearing scrubs. They had the doctor wearing um, professional clothing with a white coat. Um, and then they had doctor wearing scrubs with a white coat. and of all the different uh, possible attire combos, the best and the highest rated one from patients was that would was to wear scrubs with a white coat. So the way that you use Cialdini's principles is to wear scrubs with a white coat. And so now, ever since that study came out, you'll see that now there's more people wearing white coats. Sometimes you walk into offices and the hygienist and the doctors are both wearing white coats. Um, but wearing a white coat and then also having your degrees up on the wall. So having all of your degrees, things that you've accomplished, the more things that you have accomplished that are on the wall and displayed, the better. Those are two ways that you can use authority in the practice to help your patients understand how committed you are to your, your work, basically. Yeah, I love that because it's like a first impression, which is you know, can, like we were saying, it can be misused or misperceived if it's not used properly. It can be misleading, kind of like 
it's almost like the social media presence thing. Like people view that as authoritative almost, you know, they get a certain impression, but it doesn't necessarily mean a person's a good doctor or a bad doctor. It's just something completely different, but it's interesting how that, that first impression we can get from degrees, from qualifications, from achievements, you know, it does mean a lot in a subconscious way. It doesn't, it doesn't, forego the personal connection that we have to have in all the other principles, but that's definitely an important piece of the puzzle. And I can see how and why. So the next thing, principle five is liking. So people are more likely to do something when asked by someone they like. So what's the deal if you like someone? According to Cialdini, you're more likely to be influenced by that individual. Thanks to human nature, we are much more likely to like people who pay them compliments and who cooperate with us than those who don't. And unfortunately, given positive evidence in relation to certain benefits of diversity, people are also much more likely to like people who are similar to them than those who are not. So how do you make liking, the principle of liking, work for you in the operatory? So as a dentist, um, and even as a hygienist, this is probably true. It's probably more true with hygienists than it is with dentists. But if your patients like, like you, they're more likely to listen to your recommendations. Um, so how do you get patients to like you? You know, this is like saying, how do you, how do you make friends? Cause that's essentially what it is. How do you make friends when you're making friends, you're trying to find a commonality. So every time you're meeting a patient, you have to find what that hidden treasure is. There is a hidden treasure. There is always a link somewhere between you and the person in your chair. So you just have to, you have to find the hidden treasure. Sometimes if there's a, and I think I said this in the last one too, about the hidden treasure, but sometimes like in our office, we have somebody introduce us to the patient. Um, So we have the treatment coordinator, bring the patient back and collect the data for the health history questionnaire. And then the treatment coordinator hands off the patient to us, to both the hygienist and the doctor. Before the treatment coordinator brings us into the room, they tell us whatever it is that they know, whatever data they've collected, which is, you know, they came here because, you know, so-and-so referred them and blah, 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 whatever it is. And in that conversation, if they can find it, they should also try to provide for us a, a link. If they can help us to find that hidden treasure. So if they say, oh, this patient, has a one-year-old and you have a one-year-old too. So you guys can connect on that. So finding ways to connect with your patients to create liking. If a patient likes you, they're more likely to follow your recommendations. And then also if a patient feels that they are like you, that's another way that patients will follow your recommendations too. So if they, it's not just if they like you as a person, but if they are like you too. So like if they are um, you know, if they are from the same part of town that you're from, or they went to the same high school, or their birthday is the same day, or whatever it is that you can find some link there, you that is the hidden treasure because that is what's going to help create a link there so that the patient likes you or feels that they are like you. Um, but that's it. It's really just about how you are with navigating conversation to find that. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny now that we're going through these because I see and hear you do these things all the time when you come in for exam. Mm-hmm. I see you do this mm-hmm. with almost every patient. You find like that hidden treasure. You're very good at it. Mm-hmm. Six Number six is scarcity. So people want something rare and something that others don't have. The less of something there is, the more we want it. Scarcity is the perception that products are more attractive when their availability is limited. 
This holds true for experiences as well as for material products. We hate to miss out and that fear is a powerful motivator to encourage us to act quickly. So Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned in the past that you use scarcity regarding availability in your schedule. And Mm -hmm. I would like to, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that and how else do you use scarcity when you're communicating with patients? So, um, for let's say for example with um sometimes we run promos with invisalign and when we run the promos with invisalign i think in the month of february we did a promo where if you and your spouse do invisalign then we'll give you both free retainers or something like that um and so the promo when you're making deadlines on these promos that is one way to use scarcity is when you're creating deadlines on the promos Another way to use scarcity is when patients insurance benefits are starting to run out and you send out that email before the end of the year, telling them if you'd like to maximize your benefits for the year, you know, 2022, you know, that this is the availability, try to get in before the end of the year, blah, 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 things like that. So those are all things with scarcity in mind. Um, But like, let's say, for example, with appointments, appointments or scheduling, scheduling is so tricky because my my schedule in general is does just have scarcity in itself because we're trying to squeeze people in everywhere. So I think that with patients, what I do is like, let's say if, if you're trying to get them in, if you say to a patient, okay, um, you know, your schedule's full and then you tell the patient and you squeeze them in somewhere and you put them in, you know, during lunch or right before lunch or side book them with another patient and you just say to them, okay, can you come in at one o'clock? And they say yes, and then they come in. And when they come in, they don't realize that you're side booking them and they don't realize that you are kind of bending over backwards for them. So you have to say to the patient, I can squeeze you in at, even if they call you for an emergency on a weekend, you say to them, I can squeeze you in at, and let's say they call you on Saturday with an emergency, but you can't get them on your schedule until Thursday. And me personally, I don't even work. I work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So if a patient calls me on Saturday with an emergency or something that they feel is an emergency personally, then I don't want them to feel like, okay, well, tough. I don't come into the office until Wednesday. I say to them, I can squeeze you in on Wednesday. And then they feel like I am squeezing them in and I'm doing a favor and I'm doing everything I can to accommodate them. But if I just tell them, can you come in Wednesday? They'll say, Wednesday, that's too far what am I going to do between now and Wednesday? You, if you use that terminology or that phrasing of squeeze you in, then that eliminates that for them. The other thing is actually, there's another way that we do this. Um, and even in that description, it talks about how people tend to be more motivated when they feel like they're losing something as opposed to when they're thinking of gaining something. So like, let's say with patients, when we're doing, when we're talking about reconstructions, patients who have lost a VDO that have lost, you know, a significant amount of vertical dimension, then what I say to them is, you know, this is the way I describe it is your face, your face is divided into thirds. You have your upper third, you have your middle third, and you have your lower third of your face. The lower third of your face, the height of that part of your face is determined by where your teeth are landing. And the longer you go that you're grinding your teeth down, the more height you're losing on the vertical height of your face. And so as patients realize that they're literally losing the height of their face, then they don't see the treatment as something where they're, they're, you know, spending a ton of money on putting crowns on their teeth. Then what they realize is that they're 
now trying to reconstruct and save their teeth from the damage that they have already done or are about to do to their teeth. Then they have a fear of losing the vertical height of their face, as opposed to thinking of it as, well, I'm not about to put a bunch of crowns on my, po on my posterior teeth. So that's a really good way to do it too. Like when you're, even when you're talking about treatment and hygiene too, when you talk to patients about that, you tell them, you tell them about what the consequences are of not doing it. And when you're very clear about the consequences, then the patients start to focus more. Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting way to redirect focus. Mm -hmm. it, really it is. It's, it's fascinating. Like psychology is fascinating to me. So all this stuff is just getting my wheels turning. Um, <laughs> This has been really insightful. And I think for a lot of people will kind of help us to think through how we're communicating with patients. And I think that a lot of these things are really low hanging fruits that we can start implementing like first thing Monday morning, you know, come Monday morning. So I really appreciate you sharing um, how you apply each of these principles in a clinical setting, like in really realistic ways, you know, in like user friendly ways. Um, before we start wrapping up, is there anything else that you want to add about this book, about insights that you've gained, about any other clinical ideas that you've had um, since we started the podcast? The book is something that I use at, at work, but it's something that I read because I wanted to use it in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And the more I used it in my personal life, it kind of crept into the way I use it at work. Um, but it's one of those books, and I sound like I'm you know, it's, I sound like I'm trying to promote the book, but it's a really good book. And it's a, it's a really good, it's just a book about psychology and how to understand people better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not really about, you know, it's, it's called the principles of persuasion, but really it's about just understanding what motivates people. And if you can understand what motivates people, it makes you better at recommendation, recommending treatment for your patients. It makes you better at leading people, leading your team. And it makes you better at communicating with the important people in your life too. So I, I love, this is a really good way. I think it's really good that the psychology that you learn in this book is great for several reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your insights on this. And thanks again for your time. You know, I really appreciate you being here and I can't wait to see you bright and early a couple of days from now at work. <laughs> But don't forget, um, everyone listening, to join us on our Mighty Network. You can download the app and search Bulletproof Hygiene if you want to join us for this podcast will be posted there, but also just to get in on that constant um, hygiene action and conversation. Uh, we love when people post questions, podcast ideas there. So please just get connected. It's a free network, and we would love for you to join us. Um, otherwise, we hope that you guys have a great week, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hedging Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.